welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. So in these current challenging times, we all need a bit of inspiration, I think. It's difficult with the nature of the work we do to look beyond our immediate cases and think about others in the world who stand up for human rights. But I think it's quite powerful and definitely inspiring to know and hear about the little or big pockets of resistance around the world. And so this episode marks the first of a three-part series, each one focusing on different human rights defenders who are working tirelessly in different countries around the world. In this episode, Tafik interviews Cecilia Wang, the Deputy Legal Director of the ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union in the US, And she also directs the Centre for Democracy, which encompasses the ACLU's work, which includes immigrant rights, voting rights, speech and privacy, just to name a few. She's the past director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. She's a nationally recognised expert on the intersection of immigration and criminal law. She's an experienced lawyer with nearly two decades of experience in civil rights and criminal defence. And to top it all off, she's taught immigration law courses at Stanford University and California Berkeley. So over to Cecilia. It's an absolute pleasure Uh, to have you on our little UK-based podcast. Thank you for joining us, Cecilia. Thank you, Topik. It's truly my pleasure. Um, I can use the inspiration from hearing from you as well. I think it's right that, I mean, you've got an incredible background and, and you represent something very important in America, which is the American Civil Liberties Union. But given our general interest in and focus on immigration and detention, I think it's probably right to ask you initially about what's going on in the US in relation to migrants' rights, how you've been able to succeed in protecting those individuals' rights, I guess in spite of what seems to be pretty hostile opposition, not to mention what we see from the outside as as the giant wall that was built in recent times. Tell us a bit about your role in protecting those rights. And I guess in, in in many ways, we want to know how lawyers representing those who are detained or about to be deported, as examples, can do their jobs. So the story of immigration in the US today is part of a larger history of really oscillation between the harshest times, the most xenophobic and anti-immigrant policy making periods, and periods where there's progress. And I would say two years after the end of Donald Trump's presidency, we're in one of those slow rebuild modes. And it has been very challenging. Uh, It's not to say that um, the current administration is a bed of roses, right? The recent history on immigration, and by recent, I mean since let's say the the Bill Clinton administration has been that more administrations, presidents who have been more open to immigration to the United States, more respectful of people's human rights uh, to migrate, to move to the United States, to seek protection in the United States, have been honored certainly more than, than by the most xenophobic administrations. And I put Donald Trump's administration at the top of that list. But at the same time, democratic administrations, too, have um, in many ways acquiesced and, and capitulated to 
anti-immigrant, anti-asylum, anti-refugee frames. And so I think what we see at the current moment, to get back to your question, Topik, is a real struggle on the part of immigrant communities and advocates for and with immigrant communities to claw back what we lost during the reign of Donald Trump, to try to claw back the right to seek asylum. And it's, you know, in a, in a political landscape that is very hostile, um, where you have governors of states like Texas and Florida fomenting fear-mongering and, and generally trying to turn the tide increasingly toward hostility. And they've really kept the administration, the president in the hot seat, um, trying to stir up fears that we have a large number of people who are trying to seek protection in the U.S. So it's a challenging environment. Um, we continue to litigate cases, including the main challenge to the Trump era purportedly public health based ban on people coming in to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, we won that case in the intermediate federal appellate court in Washington, D.C., but it's now on appeal to the Supreme Court. And you probably know how how hostile that court is right now to to immigrants. Yeah, I mean, it all sounds worryingly familiar to those on this side of the pond in terms of the way in which hostile policies are sadly becoming a a more more routine setup. As I mentioned, been an ACLU lawyer since two thousand and four. I think it's interesting to know how you've kept going for for all these years. Um, and and maybe tell us about some of your highlights as a human rights advocate, and maybe some of the more difficult moments when you thought, you know, let's give up, going to do something else, either whether it's legal work or something else entirely. Because I think a lot of defenders in this in this country are regularly going through that sort of uh, that dilemma as to how you keep going in spite of it all. So first, never give up is my <laughs> motto. The story of my work as a human rights lawyer, as a, as a civil rights lawyer in the US, you know, follows on years as a public defender, as a criminal defense lawyer for people who can't afford to retain private counsel in the US. And so I think I often um, talk to colleagues in moments when we've had setbacks, in moments when we're having a bleak day because the Supreme Court has handed us a loss. I, I go back to that well of knowing what the impact of our work is on our clients. Um, at the ACLU, as a, as a civil rights lawyer at the ACLU, we engage in what we call in the U.S. at least impact litigation. So we are looking for cases that will have a broader um, impact in trying to seek law reform or policy reforms in a progressive direction. So it wouldn't necessarily be a class action um, where we're, we're literally representing a large number of people in one case, but we try to choose cases where we'll have, we'll establish the law for not just the client in that individual case. But before I came to the ACLU, I represented individuals. And so to give you an example of, you know, I think what keeps me going and what keeps me um, eager for the fight is, you know, I, I, I worked on a team um, where we, we were trying to challenge a 1996 law that Congress passed and that uh, Bill Clinton signed into law that established in the U.S. for the first time really the mass detention 
of people who are fighting deportation in the U.S. Prior to this 96 law, the U.S. only detained maybe a couple thousand people a year um, who were in deportation proceedings. In 96, Congress changed the law to require detention without any hearing, without an individualized hearing um, of people who were um, convicted in the past of certain criminal offenses. And this is really anathema to uh, not only human rights principles, but also to U.S. constitutional principles that an individual is entitled to due process um, to a hearing before their liberty is, is taken away. Mm. So, you know, we've been fighting this law since it was enacted in 96, and these cases are years in the making. And I got involved in a case where we were raising, a, we were trying to get the Supreme Court to interpret that law in a narrower way to apply to fewer people. And we had successfully brought that challenge in the lower federal courts, both in the first level, the trial court level, um, and then in the intermediate appellate court. And through the, those efforts, we got thousands of people, over 3,000 people, a hearing in front of an immigration judge where an immigration judge had to decide, is this person a flight risk? Is this person dangerous? Can I release the person um, on a bond or with conditions of supervision? And thousands of people, once they got that hearing, were released because an immigration judge said, this person's not going to cause any problems if I release them back to go home to fight their case um, at liberty at home. We got to the Supreme Court and I argued the case in the Supreme Court and we lost 5-4 in the, in the Supreme Court. And it was a really demoralizing moment, needless to say. And some of my younger colleagues who practiced mostly uh, or started practicing during the eight years we had the Obama administration were really dejected. And many did that say that they felt they couldn't go on doing this work that it just felt too depressing. And the way I look at it is we got over 3,000 people out of immigration detention. Yeah. Each one of those people went home to their spouse, their partner, their children. They went back to their job and they were able more successfully to defend against the deportation charges. Um, obviously, it's much easier and the data shows it's much easier to win your deportation case and to be able to stay in the United States if you're not locked up away from your lawyer or your legal help, away from your family support, away from the ability to really thoroughly research the legal issues in your case. And we, we did something. We accomplished something times that, you know, 3,000. So that's what I go back to. Um, I really go back to that that well of, of, um, of my public defender days thinking about the fact that win or lose, regardless of outcome, it really matters, especially when it comes to immigration, that you stand up as someone with the privilege of citizenship, with the privilege of being a native speaker of English, with the privilege of a legal education to say, I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to stand up for your rights and I'm going to stand up for your family. That's what I go back to time and again. You know, obviously we play to win. We want to win our cases. But even when we lose, I think there is deep value in what we do as advocates. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I also think sometimes you lose focus when you are planning those sort of wider 
challenges to whether it's legislation or policy in the higher courts to, to, to forget that you are, you, you know, you're helping and you're achieving results for individual cases. And it's the, you know, the, 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 the standard ABC of it, of, of, of this sort of work, which is your client, you know, case by case, client by client. And what you, you're the example you've given, it's an extraordinary example of doing that, you know, as you say, times 3,000. And even though the, ultimately there, there may have been a wider j- decision that that wasn't to win the day, you achieve something really important. And, and I think that's something we as, as lawyers in the UK often forget. Why do you think that is, Tofik? What are the what are the aspects of the, the legal system in the UK that make that's it good. hard to remember that that aspect of the work? I think there's a number of things. I think Sometimes it's sometimes it's it's as basic and mundane as not having enough capacity or um, the ability or or, or 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 the people aren't there aren't enough lawyers to to help individuals. So you start looking at shifting your focus instead of doing it case by case. You're trying to figure out ways in your terms of doing it by way of a class action or looking at things in a in a wider way, which which you think if you win can then you know really help a whole large group of individuals without them having to individually come to court and that can be very attractive and very powerful but that again often has its uh has its drawbacks especially when the courts don't like the way in, in which that, that that that's approached and another way is as you say it's you think the policies are so so bad they're they're so unlawful that they're, they're in in many ways, they are so immoral. You'd have an instinct to to go for the the policy as a as a, as a whole, as opposed to looking at it in in, a, in other ways. So it's often it's yeah it's it's different if different things that come about and different factors. But it's worth remembering absolutely what you said, Cecilia. Um, I want to move on to. I guess we've touched on this in in many ways, but in the UK, it's fair to say that our law and policy makers i.e the government and the executive has become more extreme and hostile to migrants and in fact it's timely that we have this conversation because in recent days um the prime minister the british prime minister has made a lot of noise about pulling out of the european convention on human rights so basically trying to bring in further legislation to cut down the, the remaining rights that migrants and many, many, many others, not just migrants, have in relation to their human rights. Maybe a change of government will force a change in, in these proposed laws. Um, you know, we've got an election next year, as do you. You did touch on this earlier. Um, wh- what do you think changes of government can bring? I mean, if you think that there's a change an executive branch or the legislative branch? And what's the role as us as lawyers to to try and affect that change if possible? Interesting question, especially framed as, as you put it, in the context of the differences between the parliamentary system you have in the UK and the system we have here. You know, I, I know very little about the UK system, but it does seem that change can come more quickly and more suddenly. It can come out of left field with a parliamentary system. Here, we're stuck with the president for um, four years, better for better or for worse. And so I think, you know, I was actually, um, obviously, the four years of Donald Trump as president were just really, the bottom fell out 
of human rights, civil rights in general in the United States. And because of the way that he had, he's made, you know, those appointments to the Supreme Court, we're stuck with the legacy of Donald Trump in the Supreme Court for probably the next 30 years. And so, as I said earlier, we also have the dynamic when it comes to immigrants' rights as compared to some other issues in the U.S. relating to, to racial justice. Democratic administrations have not in my lifetime been particularly progressive. Certainly compared to Donald Trump, um, the Biden administration has has been an improvement. But, but as I said, this administration has remained uh, really susceptible to political dynamics at the U.S.-Mexico border. They seem to be running scared from Republican anti-immigrant governors fomenting fears. Um, and it's been a real, I don't know that I would say it's a disappointment because I wasn't expecting an instant improvement with the change of administrations in, in January of 2021, um, given uh, the Obama administration's really mixed record on immigration. But it has been a disappointment that this administration, the current administration, and the Secretary of Homeland Security, um, Alejandro Mayorkas, has continued to, you know, they're, they're trying to walk a fine line. Uh, they know that uh, people of color, minority voters are, are a major part of their constituency, but at the same time, they know that they're they're playing to moderates, they're playing to the right as well. And so they've continued many of Donald Trump's anti-immigrant, anti-asylum policies, including this this um, purportedly COVID-related ban, which the public health agency in the U.S. had declared that there was, is no longer any public health basis to have this ban on immigration and on asylum um, at the U.S.-Mexico border. And yet the Biden administration has continued to try to keep that, that ban in place. So again, it's a mixed record. You know, I think regardless of, you know, it looks like Biden will run again for re-election. If he is re-elected, um, then I think we'll have more, more struggle. But certainly the alternative, which is a President Trump or a President DeSantis, um, would be disastrous. I mean, truly going back to and facing an even worse situation than we did during the four years of Trump's presidency. But there's really blatant, blatant race-based, anti-Black, anti-Latino sentiment um, expressed in support of official U.S. government policy. So that's what's at stake in the in the election. The normal fight <laughs> for, for human rights and immigrants' rights and for asylum and refuge or really, um, you know, a, an existential fight over what I see as, you know, are, are we going to live up to our aspirational values espoused in the Constitution of the United States? Or are we going to descend into a, another period of blatant, blatant racism and xenophobia? Yeah, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, that do you do you sometimes think the government reacts to what they perceive the, the public to want? Or is it the government that they control the narrative and as a result of the, the, the various, the rhetoric that comes out of senior government officials public are sort of swayed as a result. I mean, in, in the UK, for a number of years now, there is, there's been a real anti-immigrant sentiment coming out of government, but also it seems, from my perception, 
very much so in the public um there's a, there's this idea that the the immigrant population is either taking over or the the migrants that are coming in it's rising even though the statistics may not show that and as a result the you know our concern here is whether a new government that comes in next year the labor government if 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 they are elected are going to be too scared to um run for election on what we say are kind of basic rational human rights um points and instead remain silent on those issues or they won't change much once they come into power because mm-hmm. they're going to try and you know seek re-election how do you feel about that when you know I mean our labor the the person you know that in opposition is a former human rights lawyer it it's it's difficult isn't it when you think politics will be will will come at a price because of what they believe they have to sacrifice Yeah, that's certainly a factor in the US too. Whenever there's been a democratic administration during the 8 years with President Obama and so far in the Biden administration, we do have a lot of um colleagues, you know, people who are on this side of of the, you know, advocating um going into the the executive branch and working in the Department of Homeland Security, working in the Department of Justice, uh trying to, you know, enact change through through the inside of government. And that is honorable. It is completely honorable, um more power to them. But yeah, they're they're in the, those roles. They're subject to uh political considerations and are going to have to make compromises. That's what that's what government does. uh by definition you know the the th- the factor we haven't talked about tofik in the US is that we have a federal system and you know I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on on you know if there is a counterpart in the UK um but we've become in the US you know when you talk about the political landscape when you talk about public opinion we've become just really hyper divided uh where we have blue states those are states that are more progressive blue refers obviously to the democratic party but you know there there's and we have red states where you know governor abbot of texas governor DeSantis of florida have really led the charge and are like donald trump very savvy about manipulating public opinion uh without regard for the actual facts and data and you know we have other states um that are uh are pro immigrant that and and i think that reflects this 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 divide between blue states and red states in the us reflects a, a long history in the us of this really um bipolar attitude toward immigration you know one of the stories that we tell ourselves as as america is that we are a nation of immigrants and that immigrants contribute to the United States. Um at the same time we have this I think really um a a very different almost opposite um narrative that immigration is a national security issue, that the border is a militarized zone that must be defended against invasion. That that alternative narrative has become really ascendant um recently and You know the truth is in history you the US has had that sort of oscillation between this view um that foreigners are to be feared that foreigners bring crime and contagion and um are taking scarce resources and the view that immigrants contribute 
um, to this country, that we wouldn't have innovation and all the things we enjoy as a country about our own national story, that none of those things would happen without immigration. So there are these competing narratives. And unfortunately, to me, it feels like the anti-immigrant forces, the DeSantis's, Trump's, and Abbott's of our country have really been much more successful in dominating the federal conversation, the the national conversation. When Americans, I think, by and large are perceiving where they live in local communities, the contributions that immigrants are making. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you've got this sort of strange disconnect between the lived reality and where public opinion seems to be trending. Yeah, I think I think that's in many ways very similar to what's happening in the UK. I mean, if you take, let's say, Brexit, and of course, many, many people tell me that Brexit wasn't just on the issue of migration, but it was, I would say, a huge factor. And if you look at the way in which the voting was divided, it was, you know, almost 50-50 split. So red and blue style, you know, Brexit and Remainers in that sense. And, and in many ways, this government is always very quick to say that Britain has a long history of protecting and um, giving sanctuary to refugees and migrants. You know, there's a long history in, in relation to the Commonwealth and colonialism where migrants and immigrants have come to the UK. And yet, this, in the same breath, you know, the, the British Home Secretary talks about the invasion of the UK by migrants uh, only as recently as a few months ago. And the in- immigration rhetoric is really, really deeply anti-immigrant. And I think that often, it depends on where you are, I guess, around the country, but it really does change in terms of how individuals are affected, in terms of how they view immigration. I'm curious about how how public opinion kind of plays out in the UK, because, you know, one factor is that you have a lot of, in the US, I think, particularly during the Trump administration, the talk of immigration, public opinion on immigration is very much racialized, um, as it always has been. But in the UK, you have a lot of, as I understand it, a lot of of migrants who are coming from elsewhere in Europe. So I'm curious, how does that play into it? And is there a different dynamic? We certainly saw that in the US when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. The US welcomed Ukrainian refugees with open arms and Literally, Ukrainians were jumping ahead in line ahead of so many um, black and brown immigrants who'd been waiting for months or years uh, at the at the U.S.-Mexico border to be given an appointment to come in and apply for asylum. So I've, I'm curious to hear about how that plays out in the U.K. So, Celia, as you know, there's, there's no video in our podcast, but you'd see me nodding furiously with the same experience that we've had. You know, there, there was, um, to give you exactly the same example with Ukraine, um, the idea that there are basically very limited, safe and legal routes to come here to seek asylum, almost non-existent. Um, and with the Ukrainian issue, um, with, 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 with that, with the Russian invasion, the UK, and not just the government, but the public opened their arms, you know, they, they, they allowed... Ukrainians to go into their homes. There were these schemes set up that you can bring in Ukrainians, and which is great, right? It was wonderful to see. But for conflicts such as in Afghanistan or Syria, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sudan, you know, countries with serious conflict and you know genuine refugees 
coming out of those countries and into the UK or wanting to come to the UK, there was absolutely no appetite for that. And one can only conclude that it's because they have black and brown faces. And that's just something that we in the UK, either you feel upset and and, and you want to do something about that, or you deep down think, well, you know, and not just deep down, there were, there were some politicians who were explicitly saying, well, Ukrainians, you know, they've got our culture, they're European, they're Christian, that's kind of the reason. So that some of them were brave enough or honest enough to give give us the real reason. That's And that's sadly the nature of it. Yeah, it's a long history, isn't it? Yeah. So but it, on the other hand, it, yeah, it's interesting yeah. because in the US there have been earlier periods in history, early 20th century and, and in the 19th century where Euro- European immigrants were racialized uh, in the same way, of course, with the, the Irish and Italian example, but times are different now. I'm going to quote you something from the ACLU's history section. It says, as is often the case when fear outweighs rational debate, civil liberties paid the price. I like that. I like that as a quote. And I know, and I think most of our listeners will know, that the ACLU has an incredible history when it's when it comes to challenging and protecting civil liberties, including going back to challenging racial segregation laws, restrictions on freedom of speech, um, the harsh laws that followed uh, 9-11. The list goes on. But one issue the ACLU were involved in was Roe v. Wade. And I'm moving slightly away from immigration issues because I think it's just important for our listeners to know what your thoughts are on that. Obviously, as you know, Roe v. Wade was effectively overturned recently. But what I want to know is to share, sort of to share your thoughts on how the US Supreme's Court role as it's now formed in civil rights more generally you know your thoughts on the pretty much list size system of nominating supreme court justices and the the impact it's having on civil rights you know the supreme court has as long as i've been a lawyer the supreme court has had a conservative majority i think what's new about the justices that donald trump appointed is there there are two things that make this court different from those past conservative majority courts One is that they have not hesitated to disregard longstanding precedent. Um, If you look at a justice like Anthony Kennedy, who stepped down and was replaced or succeeded by Brett Kavanaugh, Kennedy was a judge who was very conservative constitutionally, both personally constitutionally and in terms of constitutional interpretation. But he also had great respect for this idea of human dignity in lots of his um, decisions about LGBT issues. And he respected stare decisis. He respected longstanding precedents and the way that they create settled expectations for the people. And this new court is willing to jettison those longstanding precedents, as in the case of their overruling of Roe v. Wade in in the Dobbs case. The second way that this court is different is they have made liberal use of what's known as the shadow docket. In the U.S., cases are accepted. Most cases, with a few exceptions, like redistricting cases, are taken up by the Supreme Court on a discretionary basis. So thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of um, petitions go to the Supreme Court every year. They're hearing about 80 cases a year. And they decide as a matter of discretion which cases they want to take 
um, there are only a few situations where the Supreme Court has to has to take the case. When your case, before your case is taken up by the Supreme Court, if you're a party who's lost in the lower court, you can go to the Supreme Court and ask them to temporarily stay or block that lower court order from going into effect. And you basically say, look, please freeze the status quo or else there's going to be irreparable injury. And there have been, there have been so many cases where the Supreme Court has used their, their ability to grant those stays or to, to deny those stays in ways that basically give an anti-progressive party, whether it's the federal government or a state, the ability to go forward, notwithstanding a lower court decision in civil rights advocates' favor. And here's the key. The Supreme Court does not issue thought out reasoned opinions at that stage because they come to the court on an emergency basis. And it's that lack of having to explain themselves in those uh, rulings on stay applications that gives rise to this this phrase, the shadow docket. That's been really poisonous to both the legitimacy of the court and to for for advocacy on on behalf of civil liberties and civil rights causes. So that's what makes this Supreme Court more dangerous than past majority conservative Supreme Court lineups. And that's the court we're stuck with. I think it's, you know, advocates across different fields are looking for alternatives. We are, we've, in immigration, we've always tried to keep cases out of the Supreme Court, (laughs) but to the extent you have control over that. Uh, because no good has ever come of of that. But increasingly, we're going to state courts, issues on abortion, on transgender um, justice, transgender people's rights. Increasingly, we're looking to find those states where we can try to establish people's rights, um, these basic human rights, by going to state court rather than federal court. Um, And at the end of the day, it's going to be a long slog. There's a lot of discussion about reforming the Supreme Court in various ways. I think the most helpful thing would be to have a limited term for Supreme Court justices. It should be a long term because I think the framers of the Constitution were right to want to keep political... They thought by having life tenure... It would insulate uh, justices on the Supreme Court and on the lower federal courts from being subjected to uh, political considerations. If you don't have to run for re-election as a judge, then presumably you're going to rule the way you think is is right rather than what's politically expedient. But as we've seen, that hasn't actually stopped the Supreme Court from becoming so politicized. And um, I think having, say, a, a 10-year, 20-year term limit would go a long way to making the process less fraught um, because, you know, the, anytime a justice is appointed, you know, in who's in their 40s or their 50s, they'll be on the court for 30, 40 years. And that's why every single nomination becomes such a high-pitched battle. So that's where we are with our Supreme Court. Yeah, I remember... The first time I fully understood from a Hollywood angle the, the way of the Supreme Court was in the West Wing when <laughs> Bartlett had to nominate his choice, which was a big deal. I always thought that was very cool. But the reality is, sadly, uh, not as cool as um, the West Wing had, had us believe. I think um, I think it's interesting the way the U- UK Supreme Court works. I mean, we've had recent 
in a number of years since the presidency changed in terms of the, who the president of the Supreme Court is. Um, I think a lot of people will accept now that the way in which the Supreme Court is approaching case law is um, being, I guess, very, there's an extreme, there's a narrow reading of the rule of law, or there's much more deference to what they perceive to be, you know, Parliament's intention, you know, that I guess they call it an approach that's rooted in legal formalism. And that's the way in which um, a well-known commentator and barrister Conor Gerty defined it as, and that's led to judgments of late that are, we would argue, you know, restricting civil liberties and human rights in a way that for the previous number of years, uh, where there was a different president residing in the Supreme Court, which where it was a bit, a bit more progressive. And it's interesting because our system doesn't have such an explicit way in which to nominate the, the justices. So there's no you know, you don't get the prime minister explicitly, you know, electing whoever they choose, and they will then stay for effectively a life term. There is a there is a process. There's a there's a there's a committee, and then there is a, the, you know, effectively a politicians that do sign it off, and ultimately the the monarch gives the last sign off. But that a lot of that's more um, sort of um, not not more, not substantive, more in terms of general pr- procedure. But it's you can't help but think that even without that kind of explicit nature of appointments, that the courts are 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 prone; they're susceptible to political pressure, uh, and it may not be direct, but that they are mindful of what the what the current elected government wants to do, or what Parliament, as in this country we call Parliament the sovereign, you know, what what Parliament says goes, that they're more minded to say we're just going to effectively apply the rule of law in the way we think Parliament intended, as opposed to standing up for the minorities where the majority, i.e. democracy, has led led to a majority being pretty you know, extreme in, in their policies and standing up to fight against it. And we're seeing that happening in, in the UK in many ways, the same as how you've seen it in, in the Supreme Court over a number of years there. So, Cecilia, I think you answered this earlier, but I want us to sort of almost in a way round it off how do we best preserve these rights in the context of such an intensely divided and polarised um, state of affairs, whether it's the Supreme Court or the executive branch of government? Basically, what I'm trying to ask is, how will you keep going? And for all our sakes, I'm hoping your answer is a positive one. <laughs> you know, I, I'm old enough now. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the kind of downslope of my career. I'm, I'm more than halfway through. So I'm not going to change how I engage in these fights in any fundamental way. I've always fought uh, primarily as a lawyer through litigation, through taking um, challenges to government abuses to the courts. And, you know, I will keep doing that. I do think one way that I am trying to grow and think in in a different way, get out of the box I've been in is, you know, we can't give up on the people that we perceive as our opponents because at least in the US, the country is so evenly divided. I mean, it just feels like we're on a knife's edge and things can flip back into a Donald Trump situation so easily. And I have to interrogate what are the conditions that permit someone like Donald Trump to be elected president of the United States and then enact all of these blatantly racist um, immigration and other policies 
those conditions arose out of the success of our opponents in carrying out a 40 or 50 year campaign um, to change public opinion, to capture the federal judiciary. Our opponents have been so strategic and so relentless, and they've not been afraid to have a long time horizon. And we need to do the same thing. There's been a lot of talk in the U.S. among civil rights, human rights advocates about how the left is eating itself through infighting. I've taken part in these debates myself among colleagues in the immigrants' rights movement in the U.S. You know, when we want to try to win incremental change through lobbying or through litigation, we have colleagues, you know, comrades who say, that's antithetical to our position of abolition. And the way I think about it is we're all trying to carry these rocks up a mountain. (laughs) We've all got an uphill slog. And some of us are trying to roll a giant rock up the mountain. And some of us are carrying smaller rocks up the mountain. And as long as we're not getting in each other's way, (laughs) let's all keep moving those rocks. We've all got to work on shifting public opinion. We've got to work on doing, you know, research to justify our positions. We've got to have at the end of the day, those one-on-one conversations, human to human, to convince our, you know, crazy uncle (laughs) that Donald Trump is really harmful. We've got to convince our neighbors that, uh, that we're right about these things. And it will be a long slog. You know, I started the hour talking with you about the 1996 Immigration Act. Um, I graduated from law school in 1995, and I came to work at the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. I had a one-year fellowship, and I started working on um, cases trying to, at that time, um, strike down that mandatory immigration detention provision um, as violating the Due Process Clause in the U.S. Constitution. And that outright challenge to the law failed in 2003 in the Supreme Court. And we've slowly been chipping away, trying to find new creative arguments. If they won't hold that the law is unconstitutional, we want them to narrowly construe that law as written by Congress. At the end of the day, I think that's going to be, It's it's been 30 years now, and I think it may take another 20 or 30 years to finally get rid of this idea of mandatory detention that is so antithetical, not only to human rights, but to our fundamental constitutional values, that the government cannot lock you up without having a very good reason and setting out its reason to the satisfaction of a judge, a a neutral arbiter. I haven't given up on that. I think we need to use different tools to get there because it's been such a long road and things we've tried have not worked. So we need to just keep going and someone's got to sue the government. I'm here for that. And other people need to figure out how we can change enough of our fellow Americans mindset so that the conditions giving rise to these kinds of policies are simply not in place any longer. And I'm looking forward to that future. Well, Cecilia, you know, I found this interview to have been really inspiring and I think it's really powerful for all of us and especially you know a lot of our listeners I know are young up-and-coming lawyers who are you know who, who want to make a difference and to hear you speak and I think really to know that people like you are dotted around this world and you know these human rights defenders exist out here out there despite the obvious obstacles and all the reasons to do something else 
that you are still doing what you're doing. So thank you very much and all the best. I'm equally inspired by the work you do, Tofik, both in your legal practice and with this podcast. Um, thank you so much for having me join today. It's really been my pleasure. 